0: Trust, that is your testimony this morning that the Lord is your salvation. And it's good to gather together and to remind each other of that because life is hard and there are seasons of life that are more difficult than others. And I was sharing with the early service, I had the opportunity yesterday to visit a friend from this church, one of our church family who's in a, in a difficult season of life. And uh, the only encouragement that he wanted to know is that John 3.16 is really going to be his reality. And uh, I was able to realize, wow, God, you had me prepare this week. And it was, first of all, to minister to someone on Saturday who was wrestling with that and to be able to leave knowing that this gentleman has received Jesus Christ as a Savior. But just to encourage him, the Lord is your salvation. There's nothing any of us can do at all to be in relationship with God and to see the peace of God reign over this man's mind and his heart as he recognizes, yes, the Lord is my salvation. And so that's our prayer for you this morning, that it is your testimony. And if it's not your testimony, and you're not sure if the Lord is your salvation, I pray that through the reading of his word this morning that you'll be drawn to Jesus Christ, and he will become the Lord of your salvation. Well, this past week, all of us, I'm sure, no doubt had a number of interactions and uh, conversations with uh, a variety of people in, in different settings. And like me, you've probably actually never taken the time to think about, I wonder how many conversations I actually have in any given day. Well, there's a recent study that came out of Britain that revealed the average person has 27 conversations a day that would last an average of 10 minutes. Now, if you knew my math skills in elementary school, you'll be impressed that I figured this out. So in 24-hour day, 270 minutes a day, or four and a half of our waking hours is spent conversing with other people. Now, I'm not sure when you hear that number, four and a half hours, if if you expected that to be higher. Well, if you did, how about if I rephrase it in this way? That is the same as jumping in a vehicle in the parking lot of Calvary Baptist Church, and talking nonstop with someone all the way to Detroit, Michigan. Now it seems like quite a long task, isn't it? And and John, in his gospel, besides only using eight signs or eight proofs to help establish who Christ's true identity was, also included four specific conversations. One with a religious leader, one with a promiscuous woman, one with a government official, and one with a paralytic man. And he included these to help accomplish his purpose for writing his gospel, was that people would come to know that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, by believing they may have life in his name. And so this morning, we're going to look at the first of those four conversations, and there we're going to discover the essentials of experiencing life. And just to help us remember what that means in John's gospel, life. What he's referring to is eternal life. Not just as John MacArthur says, in terms of its eternal quantity, its time, but also its divine quality. It is the life of God in every believer, not yet fully manifest until the resurrection at the end of the age. So when we're going through this passage this morning and you hear eternal life, that's what you need to be thinking about. It's the life of God in the believer. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to John chapter 3, where we will read the first uh 19, actually 18 verses. John chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. And out of this passage, I want us to find and discover four essentials to experiencing life. And the first one we see is in verses 1 and 2. One must be drawn to Christ. One must be drawn to Christ to experience life. John introduces us to a man named Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee. Now, you know from reading the scriptures that the Pharisees were a tight-knit brotherhood, a religious brotherhood within Judaism during the time of Christ in the early church, who were known for their personal piety. In fact, when one became a Pharisee, they had to pledge in front of witnesses to uphold every detail of the Old Testament law for the rest of their life. That's quite a pledge. Of the 6,000 Pharisees, most were middle-class businessmen, who led in the synagogue, they were precise leaders of the scriptures, who also worked tirelessly to personally apply the commands and the principles of the Torah, the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. But not only that, they also observed oral traditions, which they added on top of the written law. Let's just say no one rivaled the Pharisees in being religious. But then you have Nicodemus. He was not just an ordinary Pharisee. Out of that 6,000, he was a member of the Jewish ruling council, as we read from the gospel this morning. And that ruling council was known as the Sanhedrin. There were 70 of them. They were experienced statesmen, noble religious figures, whose role was to execute both the civil and the criminal jurisdiction in Israel, according to the Jewish law. So he's a Pharisee. But not only that, he is a sidhedron, a part of the special group of 70. And if he didn't already have enough status, Jesus in verse 10 refers to him as Israel's teacher. So it would not be over-exaggerating to say that Nicodemus was the key religious voice teaching in Israel at that time. He was a religious all-star. More than that, he was the MVP among the rabbis of his day. Now, later on, I know many of you are probably going to put the TV on and watch this football game that's going on this afternoon called the Super Bowl. I was shocked to hear this week, the cheapest seats, 5,500. So I decided not to go, right? So, but someone's going to win a championship this afternoon, and after that, they're going to name an MVP, the most valuable player. And as I was studying this week, I thought, huh, I wonder if that acronym, MVP, actually was from back in Nicodemus, because he was the most valuable Pharisee of his day, MVP. Now we know, and you know from reading the scriptures, that the Pharisees and Jesus were definitely not fond of each other. And Jesus did not sugarcoat his words in terms of how he felt about these religious leaders of his day. All you have to do is turn to Matthew chapter 12 verse 34. Jesus calls these Pharisees, these religious leaders, a brood of of vipers, evil, evil, And later in chapter 23, he condemns the Pharisees and he tells his listeners, yes, you need to respect them due to their position of authority, but do not emulate them. Do not practice or follow how they are living. For Jesus said they do not practice what they preach. Everything they do is done for people to see. It's a good question to just pause for a second and wonder, why do I do what I do? These men were supposed to be the experts in knowing God and helping others to know him and follow his ways. But instead, the religion that they were peddling and forcing on the people was nothing close to the true worship of God. It was rooted in prideful hearts and misguided motivation. So understanding the tension that existed between the Pharisees and Jesus makes this private conversation that Nicodemus had with Jesus somewhat unusual. Many believe that's why Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, because he was aware of the potential criticism he would receive from fellow Pharisees and other Jews when they would see one of their prominent leaders openly conversing with this unpopular rabbi from Galilee. So what motivated Nicodemus to take this risk and potential hit to his credibility? He was drawn to Jesus. He was drawn to Jesus. Like others, Nicodemus was impressed, yes, by the signs he saw Jesus performing. And even though he did not fully grasp yet the deeper meaning of what Christ was disclosing, there seemed to be in him, because of the risk he was willing to take, a willingness to want to personally learn more about who Jesus really was. We see this in his attitude with how he approaches Jesus. He's very respectful. He's not antagonistic. He doesn't exhibit the blind prejudice that other religious leaders had towards Jesus who viewed his works and his words as being demonic activity. Not only that, Jesus wasn't even part of a recognized school of sacred learning. And yet Nicodemus greased Jesus as an equal by calling him rabbi. A mark of respect which would have been uncommon for a Pharisee to give Jesus. What we see happening on this evening is evidence of what Jesus spoke of in John chapter 6, verse 44 and 65. Turn with me there. John chapter 6, verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. Then go down to verse 65. He went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. Nicodemus was not able to come to Jesus other than he came because of the Father's enabling. And Jesus recognizes this willingness in Nicodemus to want to learn more about who he is. And so what does he do? He engages him in a conversation. And here's the good news. Whoever Christ entrusts himself to is being drawn by the Father. So Christ entrusts himself to Nicodemus. Christ entrusts himself to those the Father gives him. And Jesus declares this in John six thirty seven: all those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, beautiful, I will never drive away. Unlike those mentioned in chapter 2, Verse 23 and 24, who we looked at last week, who Jesus did not entrust himself to because he knew that their belief in him was not genuine. It was simply enthusiasm because of the spectacular signs that he was performing. But here we see Jesus entrusted himself to Nicodemus and begins a conversation with him. And brothers and sisters, God is still drawing men and women, boys and girls all over the world, to Christ. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9 reads, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise regarding the day of the Lord, as some understand slowness. Instead, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. There's a number of people. One of the privileges we have as pastors, we get to meet people for the first time. And I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with people when I ask them, So do you know someone at Calvary, or how did you get connected, or why did you come And it's not uncommon to hear them saying, I drive by your building every day on my way to work. I was driving north on Ritson, and I saw all the cars there, and something just compelled me to come in. In fact, one gentleman who you're going to hear get baptized next week, he felt so compelled to come in. And when he came in, it was a woman's event going on. But praise God, he's saved. He's going to give testimony to that next week. God is still drawing men and women, boys and girls all over the world, and he desires that no one should perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. We need to be listening to others and make time to have conversations with those God may be calling. First essential, one must be drawn to Christ. Secondly, one must be born again. Lineage and religious credentials are not sufficient to enter the kingdom of God. Although Nicodemus came to Jesus with outstanding religious credentials and no doubt was a morally upstanding person, the type of man you would want working for your company, the type of person you'd want on your team. But Jesus knew his soul, even though he was so religious, was spiritually lifeless to the things of God. Like all of us once were, according to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, Nicodemus was dead in his transgressions and sins, even though he was so religious. This is why Jesus seems to not even respond to Nicodemus' opening remarks, but instead directly addresses his greatest need, his need to be born again. The need to be born from above, to be made spiritually alive to the things of God by having his heart transformed through the work of the Holy Spirit from the inside out, which Nicodemus should have been aware of. He was a student of the scriptures, and he would have read before what the prophet Ezekiel spoke of on behalf of the Lord in Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 26 and 27. Nicodemus would have been aware of this. The Lord says through Ezekiel, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. From all accounts, Nicodemus seemed to be very spiritually alive based on his outward conduct and what he prioritized. But Jesus who knows what is in each person's heart knew that Nicodemus was not experiencing life. He did not have the life of God in him. This is why Jesus said of the Pharisees in Matthew 15, verse 8 and 9, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. I pray that would not be the testimony of us today, that we only honor our Savior with our lips, but our hearts are far from him. I trust that our worship is not in vain. And so Nicodemus in verse 4, being an expert teacher, recognizes what Jesus is doing. Jesus is responding to him using a method of teaching that was common to rabbis. He was using figurative language to teach Nicodemus a spiritual truth about being born again. So Nicodemus in turn uses the same method and asks Jesus in verse 4, Remember, this is a learned student. How can someone be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. It's not that Nicodemus was confused regarding the concept of being born again, as is evidenced from Jesus' comments to him in verse seven and 10. What does Jesus say in verse seven? You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. And then go down to verse 10. You are Israel's teacher. Remember, the MVP And do you not understand these things? You see, when a person from another faith became a Jew and was accepted in Judaism by prayer and sacrifice and and baptism, they were regarded as being reborn. A new convert who embraced Judaism was considered by rabbis to be like a newborn child. This is why Jesus did not respond to Nicodemus' question in verse 4 from the perspective of a physical birth. Instead, he continues to disclose for Nicodemus the nature of this essential new birth that is required to enter the kingdom of God. In verse 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. And now here in verse 5, he takes it up a notch for Nicodemus and tells him, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Second time, Jesus uses figurative language to teach Nicodemus a spiritual truth, and he uses water. You see, anyone desiring to enter the kingdom of God must be cleansed. And in this context, similar to the Old Testament, which Nicodemus would have been familiar with, water is being used by Jesus to represent cleansing, the renewal of one's heart, accomplished only by the Holy Spirit. Listen to what it says in Titus 3, verses 5 and 7 about being born again. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. That would have hit home to Nicodemus. But because of his mercy, he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This new birth, essential to entering the kingdom of God, cannot be accomplished by ourselves in our flesh, which is what Nicodemus believed and what the Pharisees were teaching the Jews was the truth. Just as you and I did not conceive ourselves and become ready for birth on our own, so our spiritual birth is similar in that we are not able to bring about our own spiritual birth. It had to be done on our behalf. But unlike our physical birth, our spiritual birth is strictly the work of God. John establishes that in chapter 1. Turn back. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How did we become children of God? Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. And to help Nicodemus understand this, Jesus incorporates by using another illustration. He uses wind. He uses wind to help him understand how the spiritual birth takes place. Like wind, we can hear it, we can feel it, but we don't know which direction it's coming from. We cannot see it. So the Spirit of God moves in ways in people's lives that we don't always see, nor can we control. But when he blows life into a person's dead, lifeless soul, there will be unmistakable evidence. Just like there is when, when wind leaves a trail of evidence. I don't know if you remember last spring, May 21st, 2022, there was a major windstorm that went through Ontario and into Quebec. Well, earlier, at the end of April, I started my turkey hunting season. It's a great time of year to be in the woods. No mosquitoes, it's beautiful. And I was out turkey hunting early in the season and then I went back late in the season and I have the privilege of hunting on a farmer's land not far from here, beautiful hardwood, just gorgeous sunrises, and when I went back at the end of the turkey season, after that wind had blown through, and I was sitting there in the dark, and as the sun came up, I looked, and I wondered if I was at someone else's farm, because of the damage and the evidence of the windstorm that had gone through that forest was incredible. And I love what one author wrote, the spirit uproots the forest of skepticism and self-reliance that grows in our hearts and plants seeds of faith. Jesus was planting seeds of faith in Nicodemus that day. And one thing gains a person entrance to the kingdom of God, and that is being born again. And that entrance into the kingdom of God was something the Pharisees and Nicodemus and all the Jews eagerly anticipated, so when Nicodemus heard Jesus mention kingdom, his thoughts would have naturally gone to the Jewish national hope for God's future intervention. And remember, who was he? He was a Pharisee. He was part of the Sanhedrin, which was equivalent to the Supreme Court. And as a, as a prominent leader, he cared about the crisis in Israel. God's kingdom had been reduced to a province of Rome. Rome. So of course he along with the rest of the Jews were living with eager anticipation of the Messiah to come to be their military commander, to be their political ruler who would transform Israel, make it a dominant world power and an economic powerhouse. The problem was they had a wrong idea of what the kingdom of God really was and how someone can belong to it. And brothers and sisters, that's the same today. Our world is filled with people who have a wrong idea about who can enter the kingdom of God and what the kingdom of God is. They saw the kingdom of God from strictly an earthly perspective. But in reality, Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is from another place. Nicodemus believed that being born a Jew and religiously keeping all the Old Testament laws both qualified and guaranteed his entrance into the kingdom of God. This is why after hearing Jesus speak about being born of the Spirit, he says in verse 9, how can this be? And we see in verse 13, Jesus tell Nicodemus with what authority he speaks this truth to him. His authority to speak on these matters was based on the fact that he had descended directly from heaven to earth so that what he was telling him was God's truth. He was, Christ is, was, and is the embodied mind of God. And with that authority, Jesus in effect tells Nicodemus that night in a conversation, Nicodemus, your lineage, your religious credentials are not good enough to enter the kingdom of God. Imagine how he must have felt. Imagine from his perspective, what do you mean? Based on who I am and all I've done, how could I be excluded from God's kingdom? Jesus' words in that conversation were shattering the foundation Nicodemus had built his life on. And my prayer this morning is that if you've built your life and you are convinced that you will see and enter the kingdom of God based on anything than faith in Jesus Christ, I pray his word will shatter the foundation that you have built your life on. He had lived his entire life assuming that his lineage and his religious credentials guaranteed him a place in God's kingdom. Even though he was so focused on being religious and pure on the outside, he lacked the radical internal transformation of his heart by the Holy Spirit. Only new birth, only new birth leads to true worship of God and the ability to obey him. Look at John chapter 4, verse 24. John writes, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in the spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. This is worship that pleases God. Not what Nicodemus and the Pharisees were peddling. What does it mean to worship in spirit and truth? What it means is not worshiping simply out of external conformity to religious rituals and places but inwardly from your spirit with proper heart attitude, not with a prideful heart, with misguided motivations. It is worship of God that is consistent with the revealed Scripture centered on Christ. The Pharisees weren't doing that. They were adding even on top of the written law. Brothers and sisters, we need to check our motives for why we do what we do. Is our motivation and how we live out our life as a disciple of Jesus Christ an outflow of having been wonderfully born again? Or do we believe it will somehow help us earn our way into the kingdom of God? One must be drawn to Christ. One must be born again. Third essential to experience in life, Christ had to be lifted up. That's what we're going to celebrate together as a family. Christ had to be lifted up. Although John 3.16 is one of the most well-known and most loved verses in the Bible, it begins with a three-letter word that can often be overlooked. And as we look at this verse today, very quickly, I'm just going to highlight two words. And the first one is the first word, the three-letter word, four, which actually connects John three sixteen, to verses 14 and 15. So let's go back and take a look. 3, verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. In those verses, Jesus alludes to an Old Testament image, which Nicodemus, again, being a scholar of the Scriptures, would have been very familiar with. You'll recall in Numbers chapter 21, verses 4 to 9, when the Israelites were journeying through the wilderness, and being typical people of God, they began to complain. Of course, we can't relate to that. But they were complaining with the circumstances they were in, and they began to grumble against God and Moses. And so what did God do? God sent poisonous snakes to bite them, and many of them died. Wow, would that ever change the complaining in my household if that was the result, right? And the people repented, and they cried out in mercy. And what did God instruct Moses to do? He says, Moses, put an image of a... um, a snake on a pole, and those who have been bit, when they look at that, they will continue to live physically. Now, I want to make it clear, it wasn't the snake that healed them. It was their faith in believing what God had told them to do. It was God who healed them, but they had faith to believe what God had told them to do. And so that's what they did. And that was a foreshadowing of Christ's crucifixion, which he too would be exalted and glorified. Just as it was essential for the bronze snake to be lifted up, for people to live physically, the Son of Man had to be lifted up so people who turn to him will live spiritually forever, experience life. We needed someone to come and rescue us from the wages of sin, which is death. And the Son of Man the Messiah, Jesus Christ, was the only qualified person to be lifted up and provide eternal life. Remember what John the Baptist said in John 1, 29, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The other word I want to look at is the word so. For God so loved the world. Oftentimes, people can interpret this and think it talks about the intensity or the the breadth of God's love. God so loved the world. But if you read it in context with with verses 14 and 15, and then you go on to 17, that word so is actually pointing us to how he loved us. It's pointing to the demonstration of God's love without taking away from the intensity of his love. Really, it is God loved the world so he gave. And we know that. Verse 15 tells us Verse 14 tells us that. Right? God loved the world so he gave. He demonstrated his love in a real and tangible way. In 1 John 4, 8, John establishes that God is love. But then in verses 9 and 10 of 1 John, listen to how he writes about how we know that God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. The proof of God's love is that He acted on it. Notice the deliberate words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John uses. God gave His only Son. Reminding us of the sacrificial nature of God's love. Brothers and sisters, if you're born again... Our new birth is free, but it's not cheap. It's free, but it's not cheap. It cost us nothing, but it cost the Father, sending His one and only Son, and the Son willingly laying down His life for us so that we could have the opportunity to be born again. I like how one author writes it, His love for the world is so remarkable, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so wicked. Wicked. That's what makes his love so remarkable. We did not deserve it. Like Nicodemus, we were all rebels deserving death. And while we were in that position, do you notice it? God loved us, past tense. Before we were born again, a reminder again that God is the one who acts first in our salvation. He is the one who loves first. And later John would write in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he first loved us. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure that we are daily demonstrating our love for God in real and tangible ways. That's how, God, that's how we know God loves us. He demonstrated in a very real and tangible way, which we are going to celebrate this morning. So likewise, does it not make sense that that's how we should love Him? I love God so, Luke 9.23 I will deny myself, pick up my cross daily, and follow him. I love God so, Romans 12.1, I will offer my body as a living sacrifice, which is as holy and pleasing, which is my true and proper worship. I love God so, 1 John 5.3, I will obey his commands. What about in the context of Calvary Baptist Church? This is your home church. I love God so I will intentionally apply the five essentials for growing as a disciple of Jesus Christ here at Calvary. I love God, so I'll intentionally take God's word seriously, the application of God's word in my life. I love God, so I will make prayer the language of my life. I love God, so I will worship him, a lifestyle worshiper, not just on Sunday mornings. I love God, so I will witness, I will show people Christ is who I I am. I love God, so I will intentionally engage in initiatives that are going to help me grow as a disciple of Jesus Christ. Are you demonstrating through real and tangible ways that you love God? Final essential one must believe in his name. One must be drawn, one must be born again. Christ had to be lifted up, and one must believe. The ultimate purpose for God giving his son, Jesus Christ, to be lifted up is made clear in verse 15 that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Apart from Jesus being lifted up, apart from what we are going to remember and celebrate this morning, there is no opportunity to believe in him. There is no opportunity to be born again. There is no opportunity to experience life in his name. And how essential is believing? In these three verses, verses 15 to 18, it is mentioned five times. What is believing? Believing is acknowledging the claims of Jesus. Yielding your allegiance to him by placing your trust in him as the only hope of salvation from sin and death. Only through him, the last two words of verse 17, only by believing in Jesus Christ can a person be saved. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. There are only two realities. You're either condemned or you're not condemned. And John writes, whoever believes in him is not condemned. No longer guilty. Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He fulfilled the righteous demands of the law. And those who believe in his name are set free, as we sang earlier, from the law of sin and death. And note the present tense. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Meaning our condemnation has already been removed. Our sentence has already been removed. We don't just anticipate a final day when God removes guilt from us and does not cast us into eternal punishment. We have already been freed from sin's guilt. Sin is no longer our master. And yet, in the same verse, John is clear that whoever does not believe stands condemned. All sin is including our own, bears the penalty of death. For the wages of sin is death, it says in Romans 6.23. If anyone does not believe and turn to him as Lord and Savior, their condemnation has not been removed. Jordan recited for us verse 17 earlier, God's purpose in sending his Son was not to condemn the world. He did not need to come to earth to condemn mankind. We were already condemned. That's clear throughout human history. Man first sinned in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve foolishly stepped out from under God's perfect and wise rule, his reign, deciding that they knew what was best. And the result since then is every person is born condemned. That's why we needed a Savior. Believing is the key to experiencing life. The difference between eternal death and eternal life is believing in Christ, the Messiah the Son of God. And for those of us who have had that privilege of being drawn to Christ, who have been born again through the work of the Holy Spirit, who have recognized Jesus as the only way to the Father, and who have been given the gift of faith to believe, we must never grow tired of gathering together to celebrate the gift of faith we receive to believe in His name and have life. Everything That is essential to be experiencing life has been provided by God, including the ability to even believe. Ephesians 2 verse 8 and 9 says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. What an opposite idea to how the Pharisees lived, full of pride. And here, The word of God says, no, the gift of faith you have to even believe was given by God so that none of us can boast when we gather before the Lord's table. Everything has been provided for us. That's why we are going to remember. That's why we are going to celebrate. We are in essence going to retell the story that Nicodemus, the conversation that Nicodemus and Jesus had that night. That's what we're going to do now. We're going to remember and celebrate that God has provided everything that is essential for you and I to experience life. Father, thank you so much. Thank you so much for your love that you demonstrated in a very real and tangible way. Thank you that you have provided everything for anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to experience life. And so God, as we gather now, Around the Lord's table, for those of us who are born again, I pray that we will approach you with such gratitude and in such humility, recognizing this is all from you. And I pray, God, that you would help us stir in our hearts a new desire to demonstrate our love in real and tangible ways. And for anyone here, Lord, who you are drawing to Christ, Please give them the gift of faith so they will believe and experience life in his name today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Understanding who Nicodemus was, part of the legal system of his day, I think it's very cool how the Holy Spirit directed John to write in verse 19, this is the verdict. As he made his commentary on Either you're walking in darkness or you're walking by the truth and have come into the light. Nicodemus, by God's grace, moved from a seeker who is being drawn to a secret follower, which you can read about in chapter seven, to a public witness. I want to read a passage from John chapter 19, verse 38, as we wrap up this morning. It's kind of like this is the rest of the story. He gave sacrificially. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. From a seeker being drawn to a secret follower... To public witness. Our prayer for you this morning is that all of you can testify that you are born again. If you are not, please come and talk to us. We would love to introduce, have a conversation with you, and introduce you to Jesus who loves you. Because we don't know what tomorrow holds. I was reflecting this week on the tragedies that happened in Turkey and Syria, and how quickly life was taken away, over 24,000 people. Are you ready should your physical house collapse today to live spiritually forever? Everything has been provided. Receive him as your Lord and Savior today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.